We're going to the Word in Romans chapter 9, um, verse 1 through 24. I don't know how the pastor plans on pulling that off since I've seen him do this a couple of times, but 1 through 24 is what he told me, so that's where we're at. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my, also, uh, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has not taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are, are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your she- seed you shall be called. That is, those who are the children of flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son." Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared to all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the things formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? What is God wanting to show? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured much long suffering with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? I would say. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, to, and is to come. It's not long now, so let's go to prayer. Father God, we just thank you for what you're doing in this body of Christ, Lord. And I just pray that your power will fall down upon us, Holy Spirit, that you will give us boldness to speak into others' lives, Lord, that we may be disciple makers as you've called us to be, finding just one or two or whatever and many you would put before us, Lord, that we would take your word and take it seriously and be the church, actively going out, serving you, and then collectively coming together to praise you, Lord. 
We thank you for the word today, Lord. We praise you for our pastor that's coming forward, Lord. We pray you empower him with your Holy Spirit and that you will give us eyes and ears to see and understand, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good, amen. All the time. Man, as we, I wanted to take a minute and just kind of back up and go read over the whole chapter because I want to continue to remind us. A chapter in Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that um, for whatever reason, people want to, I feel, pull it out of context. And so I want to try to continue to give us context in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we're dealing with the problem of God's righteousness. And and Paul's going to bring up six points through the chapter of uh, evidence of, uh, of this struggle. What's the struggle? Well, if God is righteous, and if God chose the nation of Israel, then how come they're not all saved? They rejected their Messiah. And if they rejected their Messiah, then is the Word of God found to be... But empty, lost, it's, it's, it's not true? What, what, how do we relate God's righteousness with the reality of what we see in Israel? So Romans chapter 9 deals with the rejection of Israel. Romans chapter 10 deals with the reception of the Gentiles. The Gentiles being brought in. And when we come to, to Romans uh, chapter 11, we're going to see the restoration of the nation of Israel. So I want you to keep the eye, the concept. He is in Romans chapter 9 talking about nations. His focus is on nations. Even when it sounds like he's talking about people. We talked about that last time and we'll briefly talk about it again today. His focus is what's going on with the nations. He begins in verse 1 through 5. And we see the sorrow of Paul over the rejection of Israel. Israel did not receive her Messiah. And for the most part... Israel was not saved at the time of Paul. The church was made up of Jews and Gentiles. But Israel as a whole, the nation, they weren't part of the church. So what what happened? What was God doing? The second part we saw last time as we talked from 6 through 13, in the selection of the seed. Remember over and over again, he's talking about the nation and the people through whom the seed would come. That seed is God's blessing for the entire world. See, the seed of Abraham, the promise was that it would bless all the nations. The seed of Isaac, the promise was it would bless all the nations. The seed of Jacob, the promise was it would bless all the nations. The seed, singular, is always talking about Messiah. The Messiah. God, does He have the right to choose through whom Messiah would come? Well, sure, why not? We often clamor for our right of choice, right? We, we are frustrated and sometimes we grow angry about the idea of, well, if God is sovereign and He chooses everything and everything's already decided and I don't have any choice, it doesn't sit well with me. But I think it's important, if that's our thought, doesn't God have a right to choose? Romans 9, he's dealing with the nations. He said that it was in the mother's belly, the Lord spoke to her and said, you have not two sons, what did the Lord say? Two nations 
fighting within you, two nations, Jacob and Esau. And the Lord said, before they were born, before they did anything wrong, I'm choosing Jacob. Through Jacob, my seed will be called. Through Jacob, Messiah is going to be born. Then he quotes at the end there in in verse 13, somewhere around that area, he quotes, he says, For it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That was written almost, not quite, uh, what, 14, 1500 years after Jacob and Esau were dead. And through Jacob and Esau had come nations. And those nations were known as Israel and Edom. And Edom had spent a lot of time fighting against Jacob. Now when the Lord declares, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, was He saying, I've chosen all of Jacob and all of Israel is saved and none of Edom is. We know that's not true. We talked about it last time. We went through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation tells us when the multitude of the saved are gathered in heaven, He says there are people there from every tribe, nation, tongue, all gathered together. So we know it's not talking about salvation. He's talking about corporate election of the nation. Jacob, Israel. Those are the people through whom Messiah came. And that's going to be his point as we continue to work our way through, as we continue to wind our way down to what God is laying out for us in, in chapter 10 and into 11. Now we won't get all the way to chapter 11 today. We, we probably won't get into chapter 10. But I want us to keep the idea, keep the concept of what we're looking at. Because today we're going to talk about God's sovereignty. And so we'll, we'll begin there in verse 14. So what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Whenever we look at a situation and we say, we're looking at Jacob and Esau and the fact that God chose a nation out of all the world through whom He would bring Messiah and that would bless all the world so that whosoever would call on the name of the Lord could be saved. So God chose to do that through Israel. Do we say then, is God unrighteous because He chose? Because He elected a nation? Because He brought them forward? Anytime we find ourselves in a place where we're questioning whether or not God's righteous, let's make it simple. The problem is not God. The problem is me. It's my understanding. It's my reckoning. It's it's what I see or how I see it. But the reality, the reality is that God knows what He's doing. And it's going to give us two more examples on the pages of Scripture as we work our way through the concept of God's sovereignty. First, Moses. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now every time, not every time, oftentimes people will come to this section and they start to focus on what it does not say. They'll look at it and say, well, the Lord says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And in a little while, he's going to say, I will harden who I will harden. But that's not what he said to Moses. What did he say to Moses? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God says, it's not up to you to decide who I can love and who I can't. Who I will show mercy and who I won't. See, we always want mercy for us. We struggle wanting mercy for someone else. 
For the nation of Israel, they felt like, well, it's not that much different than how it is today. Just put yourself in their shoes today. And the things that are going on in the Gaza and the missile attacks and the things that are being done, wouldn't it be easy to want mercy for yourself but justice for them? I want justice for those guys who are shooting missiles. Oh, what about in Iraq and ISIS and cutting off the heads of prisoners? Isn't it easy to say, we want mercy, but I want justice for him. God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not our call who God has mercy on. When he came to Moses, the particular time that he's talking about, he's talking about uh, Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf. You guys remember the incident? Moses has been up the, the Ten Commandments. He comes down, they got a golden calf, breaks the Ten Commandments. He says, oh, you guys have really messed up. You sinned. I'm going to go talk to God. And he goes to God and he says, Lord, if it's if, if you're willing, forgive this people. But if not, take my name out of your book. It's a, it's, a, it's a great call of intercessory prayer. But it's also an opportunity when Moses is saying to God, look, um, you need to forgive them all. You need to have mercy on them all. And God said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I will visit their sin upon them. There's a payday for everybody, right? Payday someday. And and we do not have the ability to control the sovereign hand of God. But when we talk about the sovereign hand of God and the power of God, we also need to talk about the character of God. Because we can get so focused on one, we lose sight of the other. Is God sovereign and in control? Yes. And will He always react according to His character? Yes. And what is the character of God? For God so loved the world. According to 1 John 4, 7 and 8, the character, one of the character or characteristics of God is His omnibenevolence. He is all love. He is all good. He is all knowing. He is all powerful. He is all places at all times. So when God responds, when the Lord reacts in regard to mercy or compassion, He gets to decide. We have no claim to mercy. We have no claim to compassion. We already read Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're guilty men and women, broken before a holy God. We have offended. We have devalued. We have dishonored. We, have, we are guilty of not loving, not holding in the proper respect. So we find ourselves guilty. He doesn't have to give us mercy. But please note what He left for us in the Word. Look at Proverbs, if you will. Turn to Proverbs 28, 13 and 14. And we're going to go to Proverbs and we're going to Luke 18 in a minute. But as we look at Proverbs, I just want us to understand the revelation of God's mercy. Because a lot of people want to come to this and they want to teach things that, that I don't see there. They want to teach what's called unconditional election. Which means God chooses some for heaven and some for hell and there's no choice on your regard. You have no say in the matter. 
And I reject unconditional election. I believe in what the, what the Bible teaches is congruent election. Congruent election means that we are able to take in all the scriptures and not just one. Because all over in the Word of God, He says, Whosoever, in fact, in a few verses, Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I, I can't have that. An unconditional election at the same time. They, they, they can't abide. The, my human reasoning can't handle. Unconditional election, God sent some for hell and some for heaven. With whosoever will call on the name of the Lord can be saved. So as we look, we want to see what is God's... Uh, concept for mercy i mean is it random is it just god just send mercy over there and mercy over there but he zaps those people and, and there it's just all random is that what it is look what the word says in proverbs 28 13 and 14 he who covers his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. You can't get God to give someone else mercy. But according to Proverbs, if that person confesses and forsakes his sin, what does the word say? He will have mercy. He will have mercy. Happy is the man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. There is human responsibility. In Luke 18, 9-14, you'll remember the section of Scripture. Jesus is teaching and He said, He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Luke 18, 9-14. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I always liked that phrase. The Pharisee prayed thus with himself. Nobody else was listening. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which one received mercy? He cried, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, He was repentant. His heart repentant before God, not hardened before God. And God gives mercy. Almost every night when I pray, I want mercy for my kids. I want mercy for my grandkids, and I want all these other things, but, but I can't get mercy for them. I can ask. But God's the one who chooses, and He chooses the heart of a man who is repentant. The Scripture lays out for us that God is not merciful to everyone. He's not merciful to all. I cannot force his hand. Look what he says of Moses. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows the mercy. God does not show mercy based on human worth or performance. The one Pharisee stood and said, look at all the good things I do. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not a sinner like these other people. I live a basically a good life. I tithe of everything that I have. You know, I'm, I'm, you cannot, by performance or your value, move the hand of God for mercy. It's not of him who wills or him who runs. It's not because of a desire. It's not because of an action. It's because of God. God gives mercy defined as not giving us what we deserve. If it was of works or of worth, it wouldn't be grace, would it? But if it's grace, it's free gift from our Father in heaven, empowering us to be the the men and women God wants us to be. That's what grace is for. Not of Him who wills or Him who runs. God does not owe the guilty anything. That's why it's grace. Like 500 years ago, it seems like. I was as unholy a human being as you have ever met. I know, preachers say that stuff all the time. I had cheated on my wife multiple times. I had said all the things to make her come back, only to cheat again over and over for three years, probably. One day, she said, I'll come back one more time, but you got to stop all this stuff. And so I said, okay, I'll stop all that stuff. I got called into the colonel's office. I was getting ready to go to the Persian Gulf on a float. As I'm headed out to the Persian Gulf, my son's going to be born. Kathy was probably eight months pregnant, something like that at the time. And he called me into his office, and he said, you have tested positive for HIV. So that was 88, probably. I don't know how many of you remember 88, but tell somebody they got uh, HIV and soon will have AIDS, then um, there's a lot of panic going on in the world back then about that stuff. Kathy just decided she was going to stay. Now i got to go tell her I have HIV. You're pregnant. You might have HIV. The baby might have HIV. Oh, believe me, I called out for mercy. But I got no right to expect mercy. I got no right on which to stand to say, yeah, yeah, God's got to be merciful to me. No, he don't. The wages of sin is death. That's all I'm owed. Anything else. That would be mercy or grace. I remember telling Kathy about it. Kath, I got HIV. I was waiting for her to just bail. That's it, the last straw. But she didn't leave. She stayed. I remember she said something 
was a big catalyst to my life changing. She said, well, <clears throat> I don't want my husband to die. I would have thought she'd have said, I can't wait for you to die, you good for nothing. <laughs> That's not what she said. I don't want my husband to die. Can you make nope. No good for nothing. So, she stayed. I went to the hospital and watched three guys that were diagnosed at the same time as me all die of AIDS. I never got sick. So the, the hospital stays going back and forth about a year. Our baby's born, Onslow Memorial Hospital in North Carolina. That's J.C., he is uh, waiting. The first thing he gets is a blood test, find out if he tests positive. If he does, they got a helicopter waiting to take him someplace else because Onzo wasn't prepared to handle a baby with AIDS. So they tested him. Everybody in the room looked like astronauts. He didn't feel the touch of skin until he was handed to his mother. But his mother couldn't breastfeed because if she's positive, it'll passed to the baby through the breast milk. So JC was on the bottle. A lot of crazy things. All the while I'm crying out for mercy. But I don't got no right to expect it. Almost a year later, Kathy's sitting at the kitchen table telling God, I can't do this no more. I can't do this no more. I'm scared that we're all dying and, and I don't know what to do. And, and she opened up her Bible and read 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. For no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But with each, the Lord will give a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So she said, okay, Lord. Well, she got up and she went out to the mailbox and there's a letter from the Marine Corps saying that my last test had come back negative. So I had to go back in for a bunch of tests. Believe me, they don't just let you go after that. So they put needles everywhere they could put a needle. They drew as much blood as they could get out of me and keep me still alive. And they looked for it and in the end they said, we don't really know what's going on, but... You don't have HIV. Your wife don't have HIV. The baby don't have HIV. So, so I still remember that day thinking, I got no right to expect mercy. But God, give me mercy. God, give me grace. Now, flash forward like eight years, and I'm out of the Marine Corps, and we got... Uh, probably two babies at this time, and we're going to church at Calvary Chapel, Redlands. <clears throat> I'm doing my best to be invisible so nobody knows me or sees me. And uh, they have two little kids, hemophiliacs, eight-year-old twins, beautiful boys. And they have HIV. And the whole church come together and prayed God, have mercy. And the Lord took those two boys. 
They both died of AIDS. And I remember sitting down saying, why me and not them? If you're going to have mercy on me, you got to have mercy on them too. And God said to me, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Not of him who wills or he who runs. It's not because they did something right or they did something wrong. But the Bible tells in Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how distant God's ways are above our ways. So if we ever look at a situation and we say, God must be unrighteous. God's not unrighteous. Just our understanding. Just like a character in the Old Testament. We can ask God why, but He don't always tell us. He don't always let us know. <coughs> and certainly, there have been many times I thought, well, those two boys got it better than me. Seven years old, they went to be with Jesus. They have a lot of things they didn't have to go through. So maybe... Our way of understanding mercy is different than God's. Maybe. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But whatever God does, all these things being true, He is also true to His nature. And we have to remember His nature is omnibenevolent, all-loving so we don't want to twist it or tweak it or say, well then, uh, God's, God's not really loving. Oh, He's all loving. He's all loving. He will always react. He will always respond according to His nature. So when Moses is standing before God and he's asking him those whys, and God said, Moses, I'm going to visit the people When I visit them for their sin, there will be a judgment upon the people. And Moses said, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to to see you in, in front of me. Can't you just pass before me? You know that's the same section? And the Lord says, Moses, I can't come before you. You can't see my glory and live. Moses is saying, Lord, if you would just, if you would just pass before me in Exodus 33, 19, it says, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And God walked by and let Moses see his afterglow. He had Compassion on whom he would have compassion. And others he would judge. So in the case of Moses. God says. I give grace. Graciousness and goodness. But then the scripture also talks about Pharaoh. Look down at Romans 9.17. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So we have the other test case. We got Moses receiving mercy from God, and now we, we flip over to Pharaoh. Now, I want you to understand, as we look at the Scripture, nowhere in this Scripture does it say that God made Pharaoh incorrigible. That God made Pharaoh, he was born a hardened, destined for hell person. It doesn't say that anywhere. There are a lot of people who will ensue that. They'll look at it and say, well, Pharaoh was born. It says he raised him up. Yeah, yeah, let's back up and look at that. For this reason, he raised him up. What does the Bible tell us? That God raises up what? Kings and kingdoms. So God sees Pharaoh with his hardened heart, with his rebellious nature against God. And he says, that's the guy that needs to be Pharaoh when I let my people go. So he raised him up and Pharaoh was king. He raised up a man already filled with his rebelliousness against God. The first time Pharaoh ever hears the name of God, what's he say? Who is your God to me? No, 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 no. That was Pharaoh's attitude. And God's going to use him. God raises him up, places him in a place of power, place of prestige, so that he can show his might and power to all of Egypt. Because he put a man at king who would not let his people go no matter what happened to him. And God picked him for that job. He chose him. Pharaoh chose the kind of man he was going to be. I believe in something called synergistic salvation, which is a fancy way of saying that more than one thing is working at the same time to bring anyone into salvation. Not monogistic. Monogistic is the idea that that, that God wills someone and He's saved and that's all there is to it. Synergistic fits with the Scripture. And the Scripture says we have to receive and God calls. Those two things have to happen how? At the same time. So they happen at the same time for there to be salvation. They have to happen at the same time. Pharaoh here, we see Pharaoh for this very purpose raised up to be God in chapter 4 of Exodus, verse 21, predicted that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Right? God said, I'm going to harden his heart. God raised up Pharaoh, even though he, by his, his sinfulness, didn't deserve to live, did he? Oh, God could have took Pharaoh at any time. Why, why wait till the end of his life? I shared with you before, when we look at the mercy and compassion of God. You've got to look at the whole scheme of things. Why was Manasseh the longest king of Israel? Why did God suffer all the evil of Manasseh and let him reign longer than David? Because according to the scripture, God is long-suffering, waiting, that a man might repent and be saved. You know what happened to Manasseh at the end of his life? Yeah, he gave his life to God. So 65 years of evil, in God's mind, was worth the salvation of the soul. 
the one who would turn. Mercy is God not bringing his judgment right away to those who are full of sin. So God doesn't judge Pharaoh. He raises him up rather and makes him king. And then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people say this. Well, first, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and he hardened his own heart, and he hardened his heart. And then finally, at the end, God hardened uh, Pharaoh's heart. I don't see that in Scripture. I'd love to say it, but that's not what I see in Scripture. I see in Scripture uh, both things happening. I see in Scripture God hardening his heart, God predicting that he's going to harden his heart, his heart being hard. And then I see a little ways further, and then I see Pharaoh hardening his heart, and then Pharaoh hardens his heart for a while. And then later on, God comes back and and hardens Pharaoh's heart. What's going on? God is not doing anything to Pharaoh that Pharaoh is not doing to himself. Pharaoh has made his choice, he's living his life in rebellion against God. Both are working together. Both are working together in what Pharaoh's doing. In chapter 8 of Exodus verse 32, chapter 9 verse 17, those are two, two sections where Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But I, I just want to, I'm going to read to you Exodus 9, 34 and 35. So we got Pharaoh, God trying to let his people go, but he put Pharaoh there so he could go through all ten plagues, so all the nation of Egypt would have an opportunity to see the power of God worked in reality. So when the children of Israel left, was it only Jews that left? No, there were Egyptians that went too, right? Who said, man, that's a real God. Well, Exodus 9.34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail and the thunder had ceased... He sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. That's verse 34. So what's it say? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, look at verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Two verses apart. Pharaoh's hardening, God's hardening. What? is going on. Romans 2.5 But in accordance with the hardness of your unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the days of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans chapter 2 Under the condemnation of mankind, God says if you continue to be unrepentant and harden your heart and harden your heart, You're just storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. God in His mercy is waiting. He's long-suffering. You have an opportunity to repent. But if there is no repentance, the day will come when God, God will harden. And you're done. And that's where Pharaoh went. God says... I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and on whom I will, I will harden. So how many times can we reject the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ before that happens? How many times can we hear the truth of God's Word and feel the call of His Spirit to repent and deny that repentance? How many times will that happen 
before God will harden the heart and a soul is lost. I don't know. How about you not do it at all? How about when the call comes, you say, yeah, that's, that's it. I want what God has. I want to line up under His mercy and under His grace before what the Lord would reveal to me. For it is God's mercy. It is God's mercy that provided the occasion for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. What do I mean? God could have judged him at plague one, two, three, four, five. Why'd God wait? Well, according to 2 Peter 3, 9, because God is long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So at the same time that Pharaoh is hardening his heart, God is hardening it as well. One verse apart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. It works together. There's no guarantee there will be ever a second call. A second opportunity at the gospel. A second opportunity to hear what God is saying. Look at verse 19 of Romans 9. So you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? So, so Paul is saying, there are those who will object. And their objection is, well, if God wills it, then, then how can he find fault with me? If God decided I'm going to be hard, then, then it's not my fault. <laughs> well, as, as Paul is raising that, as Paul is raising that, that, that question, which, by the way, demands a, a negative answer, rhetorical question. He also, in verse 20, says, But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? That word for reply, you could, you could switch that word for reply to resist. Well, you say, I can't resist His will, so how can He find fault in me if I can't resist His will? And then in the next question, He says, Well, who are you, O oh man, to resist? What does it mean to question God? If God said go and you question Him, what are you doing? Well, you didn't go. You're questioning. How can you resist His will? Is it possible to resist the, the will of God? Well, apparently, based on the second question, it is. And the rest of the response that He lays out for us here. How? how? Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now usually in this section people will say, see right there, he says God's making a vessel that's for honor, that's a saved vessel, and he's making one for dishonor, that's an unsaved vessel. One's for life, one's for destruction. God has decided we don't have a choice. But that's not what he says. See, people get so quick going through the Scripture, they don't pay any attention to the prepositions. The prepositions in both of those cases indicate that God created a vessel that brings honor to God and that God created a vessel that brings dishonor or is without honor. That the vessel that God creates, some of them honor the Lord and some of them don't honor the Lord. And if you don't honor the Lord, according to Romans 2, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. 
You are storing up wrath in the day of judgment. Over and over the word is declaring. Does not the potter have power of the clay? He can make whatever he wants. From the same lump. Same lump. What is the same lump? Sinful man. So from the same lump, he fashions one vessel and it brings honor to him. And from the same lump, he fashions another vessel and it brings dishonor. No honor. No regard. God didn't make it give him no regard. But he created it. He made it. One for honor, being useful. One for dishonor, just storing up wrath. But look what the Word says. What if God, verse 22, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Gosh, we've got to slow down and look at it. So what if God, what He really wants to do is bring His wrath on those vessels of dishonor to show His power. But what if He waits with long-suffering? Even though that vessel is storing up wrath upon itself for the judgment of God at the day of judgment, even though that vessel is doing that, what if God endured with much long-suffering? What if God waited? Isn't that what you see? Remember the point when we started in the beginning? God chose the nation of Israel. And He chose to bless all the world through the nation of Israel. But not all of Israel is saved. Only those within Israel, the remnant, those who are within Israel who have faith in the Messiah. Those who have believed, they have salvation. But what if God, on the others, that were storing up wrath, what if He waited What if he didn't make his power known? What if he didn't pour out his wrath at that moment? What if God endured that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy? What if God did what he said he does in his word? What if God waits? What if God doesn't judge immediately. We read in the Old Testament about the Canaanites and God telling the children of Israel when they came into the land of Canaan to go through the land of Canaan and utterly wipe them all out. Kick them all out of the land, get rid of them all, take over. You you realize that was after 400 years of waiting for the Canaanites to repent. What if God wanting to show His power? What if God wanting to pour out His wrath endured with long-suffering and waited? According to Revelation, every tribe, nation, and tongue, some from everywhere, are going to make it. Because God waited. Because he endured with much long suffering so that he might show the the riches, make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. And I'd make a case that all the vessels have experienced some of the mercy of God.
mercy in waiting, mercy in providing opportunity for repentance. How did we begin? How does anyone get mercy? Through repentance. Confession and repentance brings mercy. God brings mercy on those whose hearts are turned toward Him. To whosoever will may come. Look, we want to understand this and we want to see it. Then we got to look at it as a Jewish mind would see Jeremiah 18. How would the Jew look at Jeremiah 18? That the lump of clay is either going to be built up or torn down by God depending on Israel's moral response to God. If Israel repents, God built them up. And if Israel didn't, He tore them down. That is what He's talking about. He's still focusing on the nation. He's still talking corporately about the nation. So many times we want to come in and pour into this personal salvation. But what He's talking about is I, I, I build them up. The same lump. When they're repentant, they're built up. When they're not, when they bring dishonor, they're prepared for destruction. But my hand waits. It waits. In Jeremiah 18.8, it says, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent to the disaster that I thought to bring on it. Jeremiah 18 is the potter and the clay. Jeremiah, get yourself down to the potter's house. I'm going to teach you about the potter and the clay. So when we come to Romans chapter 9, we don't get to just make a Western concept of what does it mean for the potter and the clay. We go to what the Scripture says. What does the Scripture tell us about the Scripture? Jeremiah 18 gives us the Jewish teaching, the concept that God was giving through Jeremiah, that the unrepentant element is a vessel of wrath. And the repentant element is a vessel of honor. And the vessel of wrath has no right to expect mercy. And the vessel of honor has no right to expect mercy. But God is all loving. He wants to bless. He wants to pour out His love. He wants to do all of these things. The vessels that bring no honor to God... And the vessels that bring honor to God. In verse 21, that prepositional phrase, that the the vessel brings honor. The vessel that brings honor to the God is a repentant vessel. The vessel that brings dishonor or no honor to God is an, an unrepentant. And wrath is waiting. And that is why He endures with all long suffering. Remember Romans 2, 5. In accordance with your hardness... And your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath. That's what Pharaoh did. He had an unrepentant and a hard heart. God hardened it. But Pharaoh was responsible for who he made himself, waiting for the judgment of God. But we can't ever forget 2 Peter 3 9. 2 Peter 3 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. You heard that, right? That flies in the face of a concept that says, God chose you for heaven and you for hell. If that's true, then why would the Lord lead Peter to write, God's will 
is that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. Now, I know not all will, but that's God's desire that all would come to repentance. Now, I know when we start chewing on Romans chapter 9, there's difficult concepts and maybe I lost everybody and maybe I didn't prayerfully the Spirit of God give you something. But as we prepare to go, I just want to read it to you from a New Living Translation. Sometimes it helps get our mind you know, tuned to what God's saying. But Romans 9.22 in the New Living says this, In the same way, even though God has the right to show His anger and His power, He is very patient with those on whom His anger falls who are destined for destruction. You hear the heart of God. He doesn't bring it. He waits. Because some of those people are going to be Manassas. Some of them won't. But anyone who is lost and stands before God at the great white throne, when he stands before the Lord God and he looks to Him, he's not going to be able to say, God, you made all my choices for me. The Lord said, no, I knew all your choices. I knew that even though I came to you over and over and over again, you would reject me. Yet every time I had a chance, I came to you again. And I laid out the opportunity before you. The Bible says that that great white throne, every mouth will be shut. Everyone will say, you are holy and true. Your judgment is right. We don't know how many times. That's why the Word of God declares, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Now is the time to stop. To stop getting the ideas or, or allowing to, to flow through our mind. I got more time or ah, that's dumb or it's lame or I don't get it. Well, you better figure it out. There's no guarantee you get to hear it again. Or you get an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to side with Christ. I'm going to walk with Him. I choose Him. I fulfill what the Word of God declares, who as many as received Him, to them gave you the power to become the children of God, to as many as believed on His name. Yet, while we're reading Romans 9, and we're going through this, this tough section, I also want you to know, in just a couple verses, Romans 10, 9, you know what it says there? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul's not contradicting himself. We just get wrapped around the axle sometimes when we read it. But that's not what he's... God is merciful and God will wait and God gives opportunity. But payday someday. Now is the time. Amen? Today is the day. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, we thank You for what Your Word declares, Lord Jesus. 
God, that we could just come to recognize and realize. We look at Romans chapter 9. God, you're speaking of your nation. And you're speaking of their rejection. And you're saying, though they reject it, I am waiting. I am waiting. Why don't you just judge Israel now? Why don't you just get rid of Israel and just let the church be the new Israel? No, the Lord declares in chapter 11, I'm going to save Israel yet. What if to show His power and His wrath, His desire to judge sin was there? But what if God waited? And what if man repented? Then He could show the riches of His glory. The riches of the glory of God who gives mercy to those who don't deserve it. Who gives grace to those who have done nothing to earn it. What if it was all God's patience, long-suffering, and love working simultaneously with my heart's willingness to receive Him? What if God was waiting for that? The Bible tells us in just a few verses, blindness has come to Israel for a time. They may be provoked to jealousy through the lives of the Gentiles. But blindness won't always be there. The same blindness that God allows at this time, He can lift. He waits. He waits today. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with a mouth confession is made. So if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God wants us to know. Now is the time. Today is the day. Lord Jesus, as we stand before you, I pray. If there's anybody here who does not know you, that they take the time to get to know you before they leave. That even as we close out in a word of worship at the end, they could come forward. I got all the time in the world. We can sit down and talk about it. And they can receive him. And they can move from a vessel of dishonor that brought dishonor to God to a vessel that honors Him. And they can be a trophy of the grace of God as the Lord bestows upon them the riches of His grace because God waited. God, I pray that You help us to understand and relate what Your Word is teaching, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would know that the only way to a relationship with you is through faith. Believing on your name. Receiving you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you would do the work that none of us can. In the hearts and the lives of those who are here. And as we close out in worship, Lord, I pray. I pray, God, that you would do that work I pray that you would bring people into the family of God for today is the day 
And we give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name.